So I, I want to invite all of us right this moment, if you would please join me, to have a word of prayer as we begin this first presentation, Discovering Revelation's New World Order. Father in heaven, um, I want to praise you and thank you for your word, for what it has, for what it has to say to us. But Father, I am not capable of presenting it in a way that will benefit everyone here, but you are. So Father in heaven, I pray for your spirit to be the one guiding and teaching, enlightening and highlighting the beauty of your word. Grant me the capacity to explain with simplicity and beauty and do justice to the messages that you have placed in my heart. Bless my friends, that we all we have been drawn closer to you as we have engaged your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen, Father. So we tend to stay children at heart, and there are things that we still do that reflect our childhood. And how many of you guys have played with one of these before? So many people have played with them, but you know my, my next question is going to be, how many of you have been able to actually complete the whole thing? Wow, several of you. Awesome. I still have to do it. Uh, my daughter saw this presentation some years ago and uh, became in interested in wanting to try the Rubik's Cube. And of course, when she got frustrated, she said, here, Daddy, you put it together for me. So I had to go to where all daddies that lack experience and knowledge and things go. I went to YouTube, and there I typed how to complete the Rubik's Cube. And there are people that actually will show you step by step. But it wasn't always like that. YouTube did not always exist. And so for people that didn't have the know-how, they would rack their brains trying to get two faces <laughs> in this cube. Because I think everybody can do one. And I think by accident, one time I did two, and that's when I stopped touching it. Because I'm like, man, if I mess it up, I don't know if I can put it back together with two faces together. I want to show you a short video of the history regarding this uh, intriguing, enthralling toy. In the mid-1970s, Erno Rubik invented the Rubik's Cube, but that doesn't mean he knew how to solve it. It took him a few months to figure it out. By the time the first World Rubik's Cube Championships were held in 1982, the winner, he could solve the cube in a little less than 23 seconds. And these days... Well, there's a new world record holder in our area, and he's only in high school. This teenager, Colin Burns, solving a Rubik's Cube in 5.253 seconds. This is world record holder Colin Burns, and today we find out how he did it. The biggest misconception about cubing is that it's difficult, uh, which it really isn't. I recently bought a cube online and it came with instructions for beginners. If you memorize those, you can solve the cube in a couple of minutes. It helps to understand the design of the puzzle. At first glance, it looks like it's a cube made out of cubes, right? Three layers of nine. But if you look closer, you'll see there aren't actually any cubes here. So that tells you that the corners will always be corners, the edges will always be edges, and the middle pieces determine the color of that face. So I'd seen that video several years before I even have put together presentations such as this, and I remember that video. And I remember what that young man said. It seems difficult, but it's not. And in order for it to be simple, you have to understand what, my friends? You have to understand the design. And when I saw that video, I finally dawned on me, those pieces don't float around, they're actually fixed. And the color is determined by the piece in the center. That's when you know that that side is supposed to be green, 
the other side is supposed to be blue, etc. Those pieces are the corners that tell you what color you should be working on and which side. And the corners never change, so it's a matter of placing them strategically, and there's algorithms. Once you discover how the Rubik's Cube goes, then you're no longer afraid of it. I have a young friend named Rush who is here this evening. He can impress you while we're having fellowship. I don't know if he usually carries it with him, but um, you can ask him. He does it pretty quick, and some of these uh, Rubik's Cubes are magnetic anymore so that they can flow really fast, and you see children just not even looking, going like this, and the whole thing is done. People my age, <laughs> it doesn't happen that fast. Uh, it takes about a couple of weeks for me to finish one. Um, but the book of Revelation <clears throat> has some similarities. The peop many friends, myself included, have read through that book, and I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience usually ended up with very confused or very scared. Those were the do dominant experiences that I had. And understandably so, because as you would read through the book of Revelation, you read about plagues, beasts, horns, wars, blood, and all sorts of uh, intriguing things. And it didn't read like a normal book where a story progresses from A, B, C, D, E. This was just when you started getting a hang of what was happening, boom, the scene changes and it's totally different. You're like, what happened? Where are these characters? I haven't seen them again. So the book of Revelation to many people seems chaotic, disorganized, a cacophony of words that have no meaning whatsoever. Thus, many people have lost interest in this book. To boot, many people have claimed to understand the book of Revelation and have used it to, to create fear-mongering, to scare people um, into behaving this way or doing that or believing this or that. Um, the book of Revelation is like a Rubik's Cube in this sense. It is a highly organized literature. The book of Revelation has beautiful design. It's not apparent at first sight, just like a Rubik's Cube does not seem to, it just seems random. But once you discover its inward, the, the, how it works on the inside, the outside, you begin to be able to put it together with a lot more ease. And this may seem a bit oversimplistic, but it is not. The book of Revelation, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, tells us what the finishing picture should look like. If I'm going to study the book of Revelation, in the end, I should have received a revelation of who? Jesus Christ. And if you would have asked me during my teenage years and young adult years, what have you seen at the end of the book of Revelation? I definitely would not have said Jesus. I would have said something else. But that's because I did not understand the, the structures and the systems that God placed within the book of Revelation. And we're going to be looking at those throughout the upcoming evenings. Once we understand how to un interpret and work the system, it becomes actually pretty sim simple. And much like a Rubik Rubik's Cube, we will begin to understand that in the end, we will see the different phases, the different works, the different aspects that reveal to us this individual, this person named Jesus Christ. I'm going to make a little parenthesis, and I'm going to get a little bit of ahead um, to the upcoming nights, some of us may think, oh man, this is the boring one. He's going to talk about Jesus. And I already know about him. Have you ever healed a leper? Have you ever, in the name of Jesus, healed someone that is blind? More so. Have you ever seen Jesus feed 5,000? Would you have believed in him if you would have? Because if you go to the Gospel of Luke and you read the 24th chapter, this is Resurrection Sunday. 
And none of those disciples that had seen Jesus do those miracles, and none of those disciples that had worked those miracles in his name, none of those disciples believed in Jesus anymore. Their hopes were dashed, and they no longer believed. But in that chapter, Jesus meets two of these disciples, and Jesus opens to them prophecy, the prophecies of Jesus Christ. And once they saw Jesus through the lens of prophecy, they could not but believe that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Which speaks to my journey as a Christian. I grew up in a home of missionaries, but I did not get to see Jesus until I began to study the prophecies. And if I have not yet seen Jesus through the lens of the book of Revelation, there is much about Jesus that I have yet to learn, and I'm glad you're here. I'm grateful that God's providence, at this time in your life, God has brought you to have this experience. Because the book of Revelation, for many people, will say, oh, it's the revelation of Jesus. I already read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If that's all we needed, then God would not have given us the book of Revelation, but he did, for a reason. Because the revelation that we receive about Jesus speaks to our days and right before he comes in very pertinent ways. So along these um, come, upcoming nights, we're going to be looking at 10 keys to discover the book of Revelation. I'll share them with you right now. The first five, well, actually tonight, we're only going to look at the first two. We don't have time to do all 10 in just one evening. But the first five are, uh, the book of Revelation is symbolic. It, has, it makes major use of the Old Testament, has order structures, Christ-centered prophecies, sanctuary imagery. And then the last five are historical applications, hearing and seeing. That's a principle of interpretation for the book of Revelation. And it's in there. The actual, the actual book tells us how to interpret itself. Uh, there's another principle called recapitulation, which is a big fancy word that just simply means replay. There's panorama. It's just seeing the big picture. And then uh, we will close our series looking at Revelations 4 sevens. They are four sets of sevens that are repeated throughout the book of Revelation. And throughout the evenings, we will begin to see how ordered and structured this book actually is. And it's, it's, it has dimensions and it has layers and there's beauty in it that could not have come from a human mind. Only a divine mind could have produced a document, document such as this. And it speaks to each human's heart. So I can assure you that as we read the book of Revelation, you will be filled with hope you will be filled with assurance that we believe in a God that is real and that he wants to be known and understood. So let's begin. Uh, key number one, the book of Revelation is symbolic. The book tells us so. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, and he, God, sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And I'm put in bold the stem word for signified, which is sign, which is one of the closest translations that you can get to the Greek. It means when you put a sign, instead of using words, you're using a visual symbol. Because we know that a picture is worth how many words? A thousand words. So God compresses a lot of information in the book of Revelation by using symbols. The book of Revelation is highly symbolic. It's, so the principle... The number one principle that we see from the, studying the book of Revelation is when he speaks about beasts and things like that, God makes it very obvious when the, 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 the depictions are symbolic. 
If you've read the book of Revelation, I'm going to ask you some simple questions. Obviously, the Apostle John is the one who writes it. He identifies himself at the beginning of the book. Is the Apostle John literal or symbolic? Literal. He describes himself as being put in prison in an island called Patmos, kind of the equivalent of Alcatraz. And he's in this prison called Patmos. Is that prison island literal or symbolic? Literal. God does not uh, play tricks on us. So as you read the book of Revelation, the parts of it that are literal will be clearly literal, and the parts that are symbolic will be clearly symbolic so that we are not mistaken and we're not left guessing as to which parts are which. Um, the sources of these symbols are not the 10 o'clock news. It's not my Uncle Joe's Facebook page. The sources of the symbols from the book of Revelation actually come from the Old Testament, which leads us to this, this uh, key number two, which is the use of the Old Testament. I want to give you a, a brief sample of this. In Revelation chapter two, you have references to a prophet in the Old Testament called Balaam. Anyone familiar here with that story? If, you're not, if I'm not familiar with who Balaam is, guess where I need to go to understand who this prophet is? To the Old Testament. There's also the mention of a queen named Jezebel in Revelation 11. There's references made to Moses and Elijah, both major prophets in the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 12 makes mentions of the Garden of Eden. Revelation 16, we will study this um, on Saturday, uh, October 21st. Our last night, we will talk about the seven last plagues in the book of Revelation. There's references of the plagues of the Exodus. That's where those plagues come from. Revelation 18, references to Babylon. There's tons of Old Testament references in the book of Revelation, which kind of begs the question. I grew up hearing things like this. The Old Testament is basically for the Jews, but we are Christians, so we are New Testament Christians. The New Testament is for the Christian. I don't know if you ever heard things similar to that, but I grew up thinking that, well, I'm glad because the Old Testament is the longest part. I'm glad we Christians get the shorter part. But the book of Revelation actually challenges that notion, that teaching, that idea, that belief, that somehow because we are Christians, the New Testament really is all we really need. The book of Revelation says, I'm sorry. If you are not familiar with the Old Testament, you will not be able to interpret the book of Revelation correctly. I'm going to show you some details about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has been divided into 22 chapters with 404 verses. Out of the 404 verses, 300 plus of these verses contain allusions or direct references to the Old Testament. That's over 75% of the book of Revelation coming directly from the Old Testament. And yes, there are some references to the New Testament, but the Old Testament dominates in content in the book of Revelation, which means that at least 75% of the book of Revelation needs to be understood and interpreted by relying on the history and stories and characters found in what part of the Bible, my friends? Old Testament. So when I approached the, New the, the book of Revelation and I began to study it, who's Balaam? Who's Jezebel? Guess what I had to do if I wanted to understand? I had to go and study and read those stories where? In the Old Testament. So please dispel that notion. There have be, been very well-meaning pastors, well-meaning Bible teachers that may have heard that somewhere, but the Bible actually does not endorse that view. And I want to encourage you, um, stick with the Bible. Stick with the Bible. 
I had to make that choice of not saying what my dad says, what my uncle says, what my friends say, what other religious leaders that I may um, appreciate. But if the Bible tells me, if the book of Revelation tells me, if you do not know who Balaam is, if you do not know who Elijah is, if you do not know the 10 plagues of Egypt, you will not be able to understand how they're being used by God in the book of Revelation. You're going to come to wrong conclusions. And friends, it is the either ignorance of these keys or the ignoring of these keys when people interpret why we have so many divergent interpretations of the book of Revelation. We want to be careful and humble. Humility is one of the core components in studying the, the book of Revelation. Not IQ, not intelligence, not college degrees. It is humility. It is what, my friends? Humility. We need to come to this book and recognize this is, this is way more complicated than a Rubik's Cube. And I cannot go to YouTube. Definitely, you should not be going to YouTube to figure out, you know, what does the book of Revelation say? The book of Revelation itself gives us these, these keys. They're actually quite apparent, quite clear. The very first verses tells us God symbolized. He saturated it with symbols. Where did these symbols come from, friends? Where did God draw the imagery of these symbols from? From the Old Testament. So we have an appeal in the book of Revelation right off the bat, which speaks more than ever to our society here in North America. If there was a time where these words were a strong, earnest appeal to our society, not just secular society, but mostly, more strongly to Christians, to individuals from Catholics and Protestant backgrounds, the book of Revelation makes this appeal today to each of us. Blessed is he who does what, my friends? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and do what? Keep. It's a three-part blessing, but it begins with an appeal that if you have a Bible in your home, we should be doing what with it? My wife and I just finished a weekend retreat with um, entitled Families First with a lot of young children. And there was a song that maybe you're familiar with that went something like this. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. I'm not going to. I want us to stay friends. But it went like this. Read your Bible. Pray every day. Pray every day. Pray every day. Read your Bible. Pray every day. Every day. You will. Some of you know it. <laughs> Why am I saying that these passages speak to the Christian world today. I told you already, I grew up in the home of missionaries. But this child of missionaries hardly ever opened the Bible that I got gifted to me by my church. I watched a lot of Scooby-Doo and Heathcliff and Transformers. I watched a lot of Ghostbusters and Batman. You can ask me about all the Die Hard movies and all these other things, and I can tell you trivia out your ear. I, I, I could, I'll bore you to death with the stuff that I know. But I did not read the Bible. And if that was in the age of cable, what of the age of the internet? But I don't think necessarily that the internet or cable is to blame. I think many Christians are bored with their Christian walk. And the book of Revelation, more than ever, speaks to human hearts and says, it's great that you went to seminars, it's great that you're listening to these things, it's great, awesome. But eventually, we all have to take ownership of our spiritual journey. 
And the first words out of the book of Revelation is an invitation to you and to me to do what with it? To read it. My friend, are you willing to read the book of Revelation? I want to invite you tonight, if you've never read it, please just make that decision. I will read through it. It's only 22 chapters. And what I will tell you is two things. Don't try to interpret. And number two, you won't understand it. Okay? So don't feel discouraged if that happens to you. It has happened to me for many years. And so it's not abnormal. What that is is an invitation to say, look, you will spend years studying this, and you will never hit rock bottom. I remember how I felt the day that I finished the Rubik's Cube. After years of being defeated by that little three-by-three cube, multicolored, I had finally conquered. Then I got bored with it, and I haven't touched it in years. You will never get bored with the book Revelation. You will never be able to exhaust its riches. In fact, the more you start understanding it, the more exciting it will make your Christian journey. You and I have to be aware that the most interesting being in the universe is God. And we will forever be studying his character and his person. And of course, how he has saved us, his grace. So the two appeals is to read the book of Revelation. And of course, if you're going to read the book of Revelation, because 75% of it comes from the Old Testament, what other part of the Bible is the book of Revelation also inviting us to read? The Old Testament. I'm going to tell you that um, I use technology, but before that, I used to go to Christian bookstores and spend quite a bit of money on CDs that had the entire Bible in audio, so that when I'm driving around to Kroger's or Myers or driving around to Home Depot or to, to the hospital or whatever, to the visitations, I would put those CDs in there, and I would listen to the Bible. And for the past 15 years, every year, I listen to the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to encourage you, please do that. It will bless you. It will grow you. It will anchor you. It will sustain your faith. It will strengthen your hope in your Lord Jesus Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation, right off the bat, is kind of shaking the dust off of us and saying, how's your Christianity? Do you know where your Bible is? Because if you would ask me at that age of 27, I would be like, I don't know where my Bible is, but I know the remote control is right there. Let us find out what the Bible says. So we've learned theory. I will learn by, by just watching, I learn by doing. So we've learned the first two keys of the book of Revelation is that it's symbolic, and 75% of the content comes from what part of the Bible? Old Testament. So we're going to apply that right now. We're not going to interpret. We haven't gotten there yet. All we're going to do is see if these keys are so. What What does that look like? So for example, Revelation 13, verses 1 through 2 says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous white, white name. There's a lot there um, that we could focus on, but I want us to highlight the, the words in red. There's a beast, it comes out of the sea, he has seven heads, and he has ten horns. Now this beast, which I saw, was like what animal? A leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Is this a literal beast? I told you. God's not going to play tricks on us. Um, clearly, this is a symbolic. We've seen that this is symbolic. If I were to ask you, what part of the Bible do you think these symbols come from? What would you say? And you will be 100% right. Good. These symbols actually come from the Old Testament. Where, I mean, the Old Testament is big. You know, a lot of books there. Where do we start? 
Uh, we have a friend in Jesus. Uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. There's a hymn that says that. And Jesus gives us quite a hint. There is a book in the Old Testament that to the book of Revelation is like peanut butter and jelly. The book of Daniel and the book of Revelation go hand in hand. Much of what's in the book of Revelation actually comes from this small book called Daniel, written by the prophet Daniel. Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by who? By Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then Jesus says, whoever does what? Whoever reads. It's the book of Revelation inviting us to read, and here Jesus is also inviting us to read. And there's a promise tucked in here. We will understand too. That's a very encouraging promise by Jesus. We will read, and at first it will be kind of hard, but beloved, you will be able to understand. The Holy Spirit will open our minds. God wants us to understand. So the book of Daniel, uh, we're going to go there. Jesus has told us, encouraged us to look at the book of Daniel. And lo and behold, those symbols that we read in Revelation chapter 13, look at this. Revelation chapter 7, this is where Revelation chapter 13 is drawing its symbolic language from. Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 to 7 says, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a what animal? A lion. And suddenly another beast, a second like a? And after this, I looked another like a leopard. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, and it had how many horns? Where did we see all of these symbols manifested in? Revelation chapter 13. Where did Revelation chapter 13 get these uh, symbols from? Daniel chapter 7. So here's the process. Here's the sequence. Before I can even come close to understanding what God is trying to teach us in Revelation chapter 13, I must first come to Daniel chapter 7 and understand what these symbols are. Once I understand what God was trying to teach us in Daniel chapter 7, that understanding will prepare me to interpret correctly Revelation chapter 13. Is that clear, my friends? Do you understand? Because these symbols come from the Old Testament, like Jezebel and, and Balaam, I must read those stories. I have to become familiar with the narratives because once I do, that knowledge and understanding that I get from the Old Testament will shed light on what the book of Revelation is saying to me and to you today. This is one of the foundational keys to understanding the book of Revelation. And because people bypass this and think, oh, the book of Revelation interprets itself. No, 75% of it comes from where, my friends? From the Old Testament. And if I were to try to tell you, oh, the book of Revelation means these because the book of Revelation says that and this and this, and I never go to the Old Testament to interpret the book of Revelation, my friends, at best, I will be wrong. At worst... I am deceived and deceiving others. We have to follow the system, and it's quite simple. Once we understand the system, it's quite simple, just like that young man said about the Rubik's Cube. So uh, I want to have you guys look at the, what we just discovered. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is shown a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast with ten horns. John in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, he is shown a beast with ten horns, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. 
Carbon copy, they're both there. But do you notice something interesting? What stands out to you about the list? Daniel's list in comparison to John's list. Do you see something intriguing and interesting there? They are listed in reverse order. Why is that? Well, Daniel existed about seven centuries before John did. And the reason John, uh, Daniel, sorry, the reason Daniel existed seven centuries before John, the reason Daniel is listing it in this order is because Daniel is looking into the future, to things that have yet to take place. Whereas John, 700 plus years later, he is looking at things that have taken place already. So the sequence is also, for me, some of these beautiful details that demonstrate Number one, that is brilliant, and number two, its unity describes or demonstrates that the Bible actually has one author, and that author is God. He used human beings, but when we see the cohesiveness in these books, we begin to realize no humans could have ever written something so tight, so unified. Daniel was looking into the future, therefore he's looking at a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast with ten horns. On the other hand, John is looking backwards. That's why he lists them in reverse order. Their historical positions speaks of the sequence in which they are listing them. Whew, let's take a pizza break. <laughs> we have learned quite a bit. We have gone through a lot of material. And um, don't worry, I know you came to study the book of Revelation, not pizza. But the reason I'm stopping here is for two reasons. Number one is that next time you eat a pizza, I want this connection to be made that as you're munching on however you like, anyone here like New York style pizza, uh, Chicago style, I don't know, whatever style you like with whatever toppings you like, the next time you have a pizza, as you're eating it, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to remind you with each bite, you got to read the book of Revelation. You got to read the book of Revelation. You got to read the book of Revelation. I want that link to be made so that when you go to Pizza Hut or uh, D&D's or wherever, Papa John's. <laughs> That as you bring that pizza home and that aroma hits you, you'll be like, oh, and i got to read the book of Revelation. But the other reason is because there are different kinds of pizzas. Some people leave the cheese out and just put the sauce. Some people leave the, the sauce out and put the cheese. But there's one thing you cannot leave out of it and it still be a pizza. And that is the, the dough, the crust. If you don't have no crust, you got some blob right there with the red sauce smeared all over it. Not very appetizing. Tonight, I want us to look at the pizza dough of prophecy. This is the prophecy that will help us understand Daniel 7. This is the, the template upon which all other prophecies are built upon. Tonight, we will look at Daniel chapter 2. Because Daniel chapter 2 becomes that foundation upon which Every other prophecy in the book of Revelation is built upon, and in turn, all the prophecies in the book of Revelation depend on. In order for us to understand Daniel chapter 7, we have to go back to that original foundation, which is Daniel chapter 2. Some of us may be familiar with this story. We're going to read through some of the details. We're not going to read all the verses, but just to get a gist of what is in this chapter, and then we will see the historical template that the book of Daniel gives us. Daniel 2.1 says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. 
something hit, hit him hard to the point where his pillows were probably all over the bedroom, blankets all over the place. He had he woke up in a sweat. And as soon as he woke up screaming because of whatever he dreamt, and he tried to recall as his wife was saying, honey, what's happening? And the soldiers storming in with the soldiers and, and the spears. And, King, what happened? I had a dream and I can't remember it. And so now he's calling the people that he thinks he's been paying their own salary to reveal to him secrets that mere mortals cannot discover. Then the king they gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servant the dream and we will give its interpretation. Most of them were charlatans, making up some fanciful things whenever the king had a dream. But in this instance, God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream and he temporarily removed it from his memory for this purpose, to reveal that we humans, there are moments in our lives where there's deep uncertainty about the future and we would love to know what's going to be. And there are many options in our planet to do that. And God's prophetic messages are letting us know they will disappoint you. You go to individuals that read palms, that do tarot cards, uh, astrology, and all those things, they will disappoint you. There is someone that knows the future, and that someone only, that someone is God. Only God knows the future. And God is, through this prophecy, helping us recognize no one likes to be disappointed. And God does not want you or I to live in, in disappointment in regards to the future. And God knows that that deep uncertainty can leave us sometimes with great anxiety, like this king. And this, these magicians show their true colors. They truly could not know the future. So the king got upset at them, understandably so, and it said to them, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. Um, therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. And of course, that option is not that they will get demoted or fired. That option is that either you tell me the dream or I, I'm, I'm suspicious now. And I'm becoming infuriated. All these years, you've been lying to me. Is that what you're trying to tell me? The king becomes furious. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean, Nebuchadnezzar. You're being unreasonable. And here's the ultimate reason why, king, you should not be asking us. And this is, I believe, the core component. God is addressing a core belief that these humans have. These are the highest philosophical educators. These are the influencers of the then-known era. And this is what they believed, and this is what they conveyed in their teachings to other humans. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other, no, no other who can tell it to the king except the gods. But listen to this. This is how they view the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. King, we would love to tell you the dream, but we're going to be honest with you. There's only one beings, there's only a group of individuals that know this, and they are the gods. And you know what? They're not with us. King, we are on our own down here. We are all you got. Don't count on the gods. They're not really part of us. 
That belief, that idea, you may think, so archaic, so outdated. My friends, go to any public university and sit in a class of philosophy, sit in a class of biology, sit in a class of organic chemistry, sit in any class in any secular university, and you will hear from highly educated professors from some of the most prestigious universities in this country and other parts of the world, and their punchline is, there is no God. We are all alone by ourselves here. And the only thing we got is science. So this statement, far from being an archaic belief that is done with, buried somewhere in archaeology, it is so much alive, like never before in our educational institutions. It is in our media. It is in our entertainment. The loud proclamation, we humans, we are all we got. Science and our brains. There are no gods. There are no gods. God's prophetic message has never become outdated. My friends, I'm going to hear, here to tell you tonight that God's prophetic messages get more and more relevant and applicable as history progresses. And we are nearing the end of human history, and more than ever, these prophetic messages speak to the society that we live in. Your children and your grandchildren, chances are if they grew up in church, they are not in church today because they have gone to higher education institutions where they have been bombarded with a message and idea there are no gods with men. It's just us. It's just us. If this dream from God could be known and interpreted, it would be completely overturned. It would completely overturn their understanding of God and his character. This prophecy would prove God can and wants to dwell with humans. God cares about human affairs. We are not alone. God can dwell with us. This prophecy is not just for Nebuchadnezzar, but for humans that look around, and tomorrow night we're going to address the, the issue of evil and the existence of evil, which is one of the number one reasons why atheistic apologists point to and say, this is why I don't believe there are no gods down here. Look at the horrors. Look at the Holocaust. Look at all these things. These are evidences that we are on our own. Tomorrow night we're going to be addressing that problem head on. Prophecy definitely speaks to that issue. Tonight, as God sets this prophetic template, is not just information, my friends. This is a revelation of the heart of God to humans. That is what prophecy is primarily for. The king orders to have all the wise men killed. As they begin to kill them, they come to Daniel, who was not present earlier. He, he requests more time so that he can ask God and God and the king grants him more time. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel comes in the presence of the king and points out that the astrologers could not reveal this, but that there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And when Daniel says this, it doesn't just debunk what the astrologers and the Chaldeans have said, that only the gods can reveal these things. Daniel is about to debunk that statement that the gods do not dwell with humans. That the gods are not interested in our lives, in our hurts, in our anxieties, and in our moments of fear. God, God, through this prophecy, wants to anchor in our hearts that there is a God in heaven, but he's very much interested in, in your life and mine and the things that touch us, the things that hurt us. 
The angel does not point to himself, but to the God who knows the future and desires to reveal it to us. O king, you were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's symbolic, but through this image, this dream that he gives to Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to give us that template, that prophetic pizza dough upon which all the other prophecies build upon. We're about to look at it right now. Its head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as Daniel begins to describe the various parts of this image, the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar gets bigger and his blood pressure is starting to go up. His head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And we're going to see in a moment, this is the dream. Now Nebuchadnezzar knows there's a God in heaven. <laughs> and that this God in heaven reveals secrets. And perchance, this God is interested in human affairs. But it wasn't just the dream Nebuchadnezzar wanted, he also wanted the interpretation. Before we get to the interpretation... I want, us, I want to present this to you. Sometimes we think of prophecy as something for the curious. And when we do that, when we approach prophecy that way, it's dangerous. Because that's when we become vulnerable to conspiracy theories and all sorts of other things that just completely derail us from what God wants to say to us. Listen carefully. Every single prophecy in the Bible has these two core components to it. And if I come across a prophetic interpretation that is devoid of these two ingredients, chuck it. It is a wrong interpretation. Because every true interpretation of God's prophecies will have these two elements, ethical accountability and moral accountability. Two elements that makes humans very uncomfortable. When we approach prophecy, it's not just that we will understand the future. This is not for like, should I be investing in Zoom? That's not what prophecy is for. Prophecy ultimately reveals a God that sees a humanity in a lot of trouble. And the problem comes from humanity's lack of ethics and humanity's terrible lack of morals, and we don't know it. We are not aware of it. It is normal for us. Well, how is this? Well, there's a little historic, historical context that you need to know. This interaction, King and Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, obviously Daniel is not a Babylonian, and the king is not a Jew. And this is where ethics and morals come head to head in this prophecy. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar already has this notion in his mind that he has come to Jerusalem with his armies, he has raised the city, destroyed the temple, and in doing so, he has become convinced, my gods are superior to the puny god of the Jews and the Hebrews. I've destroyed his temple. Uh, my gods got it. I am the mightiest thing on this planet. This Daniel comes from a god that I've defeated and I've crushed. But now God is saying, you haven't crushed me, little human. You crushed some stones. 
you've taken some medals, but you can't put me in a little box. You are going to know that the dream that has kept you anxious and fearful has come from the God you think you've destroyed because you've destroyed that little puny house over there. I am so much bigger than you think. So sit down and respectfully listen to what this captive is going to tell you because I am his God and your gods are nothing. Today, you have seen how powerless and useless your gods have been. I am the only true God. And I'm going to speak to you through that captive in front of you. Prophecy equalizes human value. Prophecy does not allow me, if I'm going to be believing and receiving a prophetic message and revelation from God, it will not allow me to look at other humans and see less value in them. Oh, you're not so educated, or your social status, or this or that. If I am engaging and encountering a prophetic message from God, it will help me see value and worth in other human beings too. No matter their background, no matter their wealth, no matter their education. I love that about God. I love that about God's prophecy because it confronts me when I do that. Because we all have a slant and a bend to look at people and say, "Mm," or look at those people and say, ugh. Prophecy puts this in front of us. Who are you looking down on? At the same time, this is a pagan king God has just given a prophetic revelation to. So that the Jewish rabbis... And the Jewish leaders that looked down on all these pagans, or these idol-worshiping pagans, could now be confronted with the fact that God has not given any of them this vision. God has revealed this to an idol-worshiping pagan king so that their confidence would not be in their religion, but in the God that this religion is supposed to point them to. And this religion is pointing to a God that looks at humans and doesn't say, oh, you're, my, you're with me and you're my enemy. God looks at this planet and sees humans that he loves Every single one of them. And many Christians are taught to say, well, God must love me more because I do this and I do that or I believe and I have the Bible. He loves you. But he loves the atheist just as much as he loves you. Did you know that? God loves the people that are stuck, strung out on fentanyl. God loves the alcoholic. God loves the prostitute. And if you're wondering if this is true, read the Gospels. Those were the ones that drew closest to Jesus because Jesus brought this with him, this confrontation. We humans love to put people in boxes, and when we put people in boxes, be sure that your God is in a box too. We worship a tiny God when we look at other humans as less than. A conquering king has to place his trust on a Jewish captive slave and his God, to recall and understand this prophetic dream, God does not give this prophetic vision to an Israelite king or Jewish prophet, but to an idol-worshiping pagan king to demonstrate God is not a respecter of persons. God loves humans, period, all of us. And I'm glad he does. Because there was a time in my life where God should not have been loving me, but he did. And you may be wondering if he loves you tonight. There may be things in your life that are secret to those around you. And you have a history, and there are things you've done that other people may not know or they may know about that. But in your heart, you may be doubting whether God loves you. He does. This prophecy assures 
God loves every human being. Whether every human being gets saved, we will talk about that another night. Daniel 2.34 continues, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. When this dream ends, it wasn't the image that caused Nebuchadnezzar to wake up in a cold sweat. It was this stone. It was this stone that caused him to wonder, am I, am I busting my chops for nothing? I'm going to war. I'm risking my life. I'm strategizing. I don't take a day off. I've been trying to build Babylon for nothing. What is that stone? The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is a dream now. We will tell the interpretation of the king before, before, before the king. So you, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. You are this head of gold. Here is the template. Here is the pizza dough. This is a historical, chronological list of kingdoms. And this chronological list of kingdoms become the prophetic template that will help us understand and interpret correctly Daniel 7. And once we understand Daniel 7 correctly, we can go to Revelation chapter 13. It's a lot of work, pastor. So he's fixing a car. So he's going fishing. So he's planting tomatoes. Is what we find value that determines whether it's really hard or not. Raising children, is that hard? Way more than fixing a car. How many of you guys have children, right? Why do you have children if they're so hard to raise? Why do you buy a car if it's so hard to fix? I just became a homeowner three years ago. Boy, oh boy, people told me, you'll love your house, but there are days that you're like thinking, man, a little match and kerosene. Always something's breaking. Never ends. Listen, my friends. We do a lot of things that are hard. But investing our energies and effort in studying the Bible is a return that offers and includes eternity. I think that's a pretty good return. I want to encourage you. Yes, it does take effort. But listen, you will begin to see not just your, your head being filled with knowledge. The, the prophetic messages in God's word will change your heart. You may not know this. But this is Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. Very naughty king. Likes to kill people all the time. Trigger happy. Kind of like a Saddam Hussein. Same part, of the country, same part of the world too, by the way. But by the time we get to Daniel chapter 4, this king who has been approached by the God of heaven with a prophetic message in Daniel chapter 4, you will hear this same king profess that his allegiance and his belief is now with the God of Daniel. If God can change the heart of an idol worship pagan king, can God change mine? There's nothing too difficult or impossible for God. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. So Babylon is that first kingdom. It's going to be followed by another one. This is the beauty about this chapter, about this book, really. The book of Daniel doesn't let us just happen to or guess well, what, what, what kingdom will come after Babylon, what kingdom would follow Babylon. Daniel tells us <laughs> by name. 
In Daniel chapter 5, 18 through 31, it says, Your kingdom was given to the Medes and Persians. First will come Babylon, then will come the Medes and the Persians. And I know this is not very exciting, except for the fact that if we do not know this, we will not be able to interpret Daniel 7. And if we cannot interpret Daniel 7 correctly through the Bible, you can forget understanding the book of Revelation. And right now, we're setting a solid foundation in which the Bible itself is interpreting itself. I'm not appealing to encyclopedias or anything else, history books. The Bible itself is telling us what these symbols are. Then a third kingdom of bronze will arise. And the Bible, again, in Daniel 8, 20 through 21, tells us the kingdom of Media and Persia, and they will be followed by the kingdom of what empire? The kingdom of Greece. Babylon, Middle Persia, Greece. Three major historical kingdoms that are in every history book. God is like giving us a, free, a, a freebie, a gimme. I don't want you to get lost. I don't want you to get lost in the woods interpreting this because this is the foundation and I want you to have a solid, strong foundation. Babylon, Middle Persia, Greece. The last kingdom is not given to us, but there's just no way that you can make a mistake with the fourth one, which is Rome. Every single history book will tell you that. And it's not just to wow us. It's to tell us we need to keep this template handy because this is a template that will help us understand the upcoming prophecies. The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, which is a hint about the kingdom of uh, Rome, the empire of Rome. Just a little side note, some of us may know this or not, but in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we read, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. What kind of an empire had Caesar's? Rome. And in this passage, there's a person named Joseph married to a lady named Mary, and this Mary is pregnant with a child. Guess whose parents these are? Jesus, and they were alive in, under what empire who had a Caesar? Rome. Had the Jews been studying this prophecy in its simplicity, they would not have been expecting a Messiah that would destroy all the other empires. That rock wouldn't come till defeat that were of iron and clay. They would not have missed the Messiah the first time, which is an appeal to us. If religious leaders and congregation synagogues, they had Torah in the original Greek, Aramaic, and, and Greek, and Hebrew, and they could read it. If all of these resources were at their fingertips, and yet when Jesus came, they missed him, could that happen to us with the second coming? My friend, you and I are not here simply to understand a little bit of something else, or hear something astonishing or curious or some trivia that you can share tomorrow. You and I are here tonight because there's a God in heaven that wants to reveal himself to you as a God that cares and desires to be a part of your life. And the first time he sent his son, the religious leaders missed him. Maybe it will happen again, but God does not want that to happen to you or to me. This is, I believe, why this prophecy was given at the heart. The Chaldeans said, the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, echoed throughout history, even to our days. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, speaking about this Jesus, speaking about this Savior that would come, says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated what, my friends? God? Nebuchadnezzar, we are up a creek without a paddle. Actually, we're up a creek without gods. Gods don't care about us. They don't dwell with us. 
But the God that gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar is the God that came in Matthew chapter 1, and his name was Emmanuel, which means God with us, which can also be said, God with you, God with me. He has never stopped being a part of your life or mine. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. This is after Rome. Rome would be divided. There would be no conquering king or empire that would take over. And there's only something that happened to Rome. Rome was not conquered by any other empire, which is powerful because if I would have been trying to make up a prophecy like this, it would have been gold, silver, bronze, iron, and zinc. I would have made all solid metals. But just at the right time, a transition takes place. There's no conquering transition, but a dissolving. And that's what happened to the Roman Empire. It got conquered and chewed up, and then from, from within it fragmented itself. And to this day, the region of this world that used to be known as the Roman Empire has not been able to be put back together. Rome, Rome has remained divided. We call it Europe, but it used to be the area in geography that would used to be called Rome. And it's interesting that it, the word of God says, and they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. Have there been attempts throughout history to unite Europe? Many of them. Many of them appeared to have succeeded, but then they would fail. The latest one is the euro, trying to unify Europe economically. And, you know, Brexit, <laughs> right? Economies like the Netherlands and Germany with a strong economy and then trying to unite with Greece and Portugal with very weak economies. No, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And it hasn't. And the fact that to this day Europe stands fragmented stands as a testimony that God's prophetic word stands true. And no matter what may be done in the future and what may the news say, oh, look, because I remember when the euro was about, was about to be inaugurated, people were saying, look at that prophecy in Daniel 2. It's obliterated. History has undone prophecy. And just a few days later, a few years later, it went back to a fragmented community of countries. He has never become united. Head of gold, arms, Media Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe. Significant because the Bible says that in the days of these kings, when Europe is around, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It's not setting a date or time, but it's simply saying during the existence of this remnant of the Roman Empire, this fragmented remnant of the Roman Empire that we know as Europe, is at that time that this rock will come and put an end to the kingdoms. Babylon has come and gone, so has Media and Persia, so has Greece, so has Rome, so has Europe. What is left? And this is the moral aspect of prophecy. There is a God that will bring to account our choices. That's why Nebuchadnezzar didn't like this dream. He was very comfortable holding other humans accountable. You're failing me, you magicians. Off with your heads. But he didn't like the idea that there would be a God in heaven saying, what about you, Nebuchadnezzar? Are there things that determine that you are exploiting and abusing human beings? See, that's why the kingdoms of the wor this world have to go. Every single world, kingdom, country exploits itself and exploits others. Have you read any news lately about Haiti? It has a government. How about Honduras? It has a government. 
Argentina, where I am from, we have a government so corrupt and abusive, so rotten to the core. And these presidents and secretaries of states and dictators like North Korea, they feel that they're above the law. They can do all of these things, and who's going to hold them accountable? The Bible says that there will come a day where these kingdoms, these individuals, will come to a judgment, and there is a God that will hold humans accountable. And I'm glad for that. I'm happy that there will be justice done on this planet, because there's a lot of injustices being done. But the injustices that take place on this planet, one day will find justice with a judge that is righteous. A judge that cannot be bribed, cannot be lied to, and no matter how expensive your lawyers are, they will not be able to get you off the hook if you're guilty. This rock is precious because this rock speaks that every human being is of infinite value in the eyes of God. There's no one better, better looking, taller, shorter, more educated, poorer, rich, In the eyes of God, as a human, God sees you as his child. And he loves you with infinite love. And he's not waiting for you to love him. He loved you from the moment you were conceived. I'm glad that a God like that exists. And I'm glad that a God like that is coming to set the wrongs right. Matthew 25, 31, Jesus spoke to this. Jesus spoke to this prophecy from Daniel when he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Then, then, not when he came the first time, but then, then that rock would hit, and then the abuses and the power struggles and the corruption will end forever. Never to be seen again. I want to close this morning, sorry, this evening. (laughs) So used to it. Doing that the other time during the day with a passage from Revelation speaking about the day when this rock will come to planet Earth. Revelation 6, 14 through 17 says, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And every free man, every human being, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and off the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? By the way, my friends, Saturday night we're going to answer that question. Saturday night we will answer this question, who will be? Revelation gives us the answer. But these people are asking the question too late. These people had opportunities to come and know and understand the gospel. These people had opportunities that were squandered and delayed and procrastinated to a more convenient time. But you and I are here tonight. The book of Revelation, the Gospels, the Bible, and Jesus described this great day as a day in which humanity will be divided into two groups. We've just read what, what, what one of these groups will say. Rocks Follow me. It will be more pleasurable. It will be more tolerable for me for a mountain to come and fall on top of me and hide me from the face of God. But listen to the other group. Isaiah 25, verse 9. Behold, this is 
our God. We have waited for him. We have done what, my friends? We have waited, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In the end, when this rock hits this, the kingdoms of this world to forever eradicate them, there will be two groups of people. Those that are crying out to be hidden from the face of God and those that are saying, this is our God, while they raise their hands in adoration and praise and gratitude, saying, he has come. We have waited for him and it has been worth it. I have no regrets having placed my faith in God. This notion comes clearly through prophecy. God wants you and I to be in the group that rejoices, but it is our choice. What makes a difference, Ariel? What sets these people apart? One thing, one thing only. John 17, 3, these are the words of Jesus himself. This is what will set these people apart. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My friends, look at this. These individuals are seeing the same Jesus, the same event, the same glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, but two opposite, polar opposite experiences. How could it possibly be that some humans are terrified of the same Jesus these people are praising and worshiping? It's because only one of these two, two groups have come to know God through Jesus Christ. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Waiting is hard. I don't think it's just for children that it's hard. Sometimes I think getting older and seeing the years go by makes waiting harder, especially when it comes to spiritual things. I want to tell you a true story of a little boy named John whose dad left one day to go to fight a war far away. John did not understand all the logistics or why his daddy had to go away. He just knew that one day his daddy said, I have to go fight a war, but I promise to come back. John would go to school with a sad face, weeping at times at recess. His teacher trying to console him and his classmates trying to do the same. His teacher had a great idea. Hey, why don't we start writing letters to your daddy? And so. His classmates would write and send postcards, many of which were never returned. His dad was in a war zone. And then one day, pastors, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming has become a fable, something that has been tucked away. My friends, as we close tonight, prophecy is inviting you to rekindle your faith to wait on Jesus to wait on that rock because he has promised to come back. And if humans that make promises to their children can keep those promises, how much the God of the Bible. My friends, I don't know where you may find yourself tonight, and I don't know what brought you here to this prophecy seminar. But prophecy is not something that just informs your mind and leaves your heart alone. Prophecy invites you to make decisions. 
Prophecy invites us to respond to this God that wants to be with us, that wants to be with you. And in our nation, in our lifestyle, our lives have become so rapid-paced, so filled with so many, not bad things, but just things that many of us have stopped making space for God. Is there anyone this evening that wants to reevaluate your values and your time investments? And tonight, you're choosing to invest time in reading God's Word, something that maybe some of us have left aside a long time ago. Maybe some of us have not had the prayer life we would like to have. And tonight, prophecy says prayer is the most intimate experience you can have with God. God wants to be with you. Do you want to be with God? Do you want this God to be a part of your life? Do you believe He cares for you? Do you believe He knows you? Prophecy invites us this evening to respond. Is there anyone here tonight that wants to say, Lord, I want to be ready for God's soon coming kingdom. I want to be ready from that rock I don't want to be with that group that says, hide me rocks, hide me mountains. I want to be with those that lift up their hands and say, this is my God. I waited for him. I knew he would come. Anyone here this morning want to say, I want to be ready. I don't want to be caught fearful of a God that is a God of love. Tomorrow night, we'll spend the entire night looking at how prophecy answers the question of the existence of evil. Is there anyone here this evening that wants to rejoice when God's kingdom comes. I want to be happy. I want to be that day for me to say, Lord, it's over. The cancers, the Alzheimer's, the emergency rooms, the NICUs, they will no longer be part of our experience. Thank God. Thank God that this is not all we get. I want to learn more about the Bible and the prophecies. Is there anyone tonight that is realizing, boy, oh boy, there was more than I thought there was here. Is there anyone that wants to understand more of God's word? I want to. I've been studying for over 25 years, and the more I study, the more I want to know. I want God to be with me. Not just when I'm in buildings like this. I want God to be with me in my home. Anyone got one God in their home this evening? Lord, I don't want a religion that leaves you inside of a building. I don't want a religion that makes you into a tiny God that when the building's gone, somehow you disappear. I want to worship the God of heaven, the God that is bigger than I, and the God that loves me with an everlasting love. I want to invite God by faith into my heart today. Perhaps there is someone that has heard and knows, but now is recognizing that knowledge is not belief. And the Bible invites us to believe in God, not simply know Him. If there's anyone tonight that wants to confess, I believe in God, I want to believe in Him, and I want to see, receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. Is there anyone tonight that wants to recommit to that or make that decision for the first time? I want the salvation that God offers me through His Son, Jesus Christ. No need to live life fearful as to what our destiny will be when we have Jesus in our lives. And the last appeal is, I want to know Him, I want to know God, through Jesus Christ and His Word. My friends, this is 
the first night. We have covered quite a bit, but there's still more. And I'm appealing to you, please continue to come. The more we understand prophecy, the more we will understand God's heart. The more we understand God's heart, the more we will understand of His love. And it is that love that gives us security and assurance and anchors our heart on a rock that is immovable. And when that day comes, we will not be fearful. We will have gratitude and joy that we have waited for Him. Love gives us endurance to wait. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that tonight we did not just learn about Media and Persia. We did not just learn about Babylon. We learned about your heart. Father in heaven, my friends and myself tonight, we mean what we said. We want to know you more. Father, we don't want to leave you out of our homes. We want you in our homes too, in our hearts. Father in heaven, through your spirit, become part of our lives. Guide us, Lord. I don't know my friends' histories. I don't need to. You do. And if you brought them here, Father, it's because they have need of your sustenance, your power, your forgiveness, your mercy, your compassion. Thank you, Father, that you love us, even when we're not very nice to you, even when we don't include you in our lives, you still desire. Tonight, Lord, no matter what may have been our practice from before, from tonight, Lord, give us the power and the desire to seek for you in prayer and to read your word every day, just like we teach our children to read their Bibles. Father, tonight we are committing to that. We are recommitting to that, to opening your word and reading that we may receive the blessing you promise us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen, Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this evening. And like um, Steve said, we'll have refreshments uh, downstairs. Please come so we can get a little bit more acquainted. God bless.